Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 73. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on Friday morning, May 27, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. I'm recording this actually in a different ersatz studio than I usually do. So if it sounds a little bit different or you hear a little more traffic in the background, trust me when I say it's better than the alternative lawn blower and dude with a power sander just outside the window of my office at home. Historically-minded Americans, a happy if beleaguered band, have many different historical identities. People who identify as indigenous peoples or as descended from them have national origin stories that sadly most Americans, including me, know very little about. Virginians, by which I mean people who think of themselves as Virginians, you know what I'm saying, are keen on Jamestown as the founding of today's United States. North Carolinians love the story of the lost colony of Roanoke. As we have seen, patriotic Californians, an obscure subculture if ever there was one, just kidding, cool your jets, are devoted to Sir Francis Drake's Novo Albion, even if the basis for their devotion is suspect. I'm sure there are Floridians who look at Tristan de Luna's failed settlement at Pensacola in 1559 or the lasting town of St. Augustine to make their own national origin claim. There was a strange moment when American Southerners developed a weird attachment to Hernando de Soto, which I, for one, will never understand. Texans, well, Texans, they believe they hosted the first Thanksgiving. Long-standing and attentive listeners know all of that already. Americans descended from enslaved Africans have in recent decades carved out their own origin stories from some of the ugliest moments of American history that, frankly, many Americans over most of our history preferred to forget or never learned in the first place or actively suppressed. None of these founding stories are as popular as the story of the pilgrims who anchored their ship Mayflower just off an abandoned Indian village known as Patuxet at the end of 1620. There are many reasons why perhaps most Americans have embraced the history of the pilgrims as their own national origin, ahead of any of the other alternatives. That the descendants of the English came to dominate the continent is surely part of the explanation. But that would not eliminate Jamestown or any of the other possible competitors from Novo Albion to Roanoke Island to the Sagatahawk Popham Colony. Of course, survival matters. None of these last three endured for much more than a year. But why do Americans who think about the national founding mythology prefer Plymouth to Jamestown? I think there's at least seven reasons and probably more. First, life in Jamestown was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, even if it wasn't solitary, and not just for the first couple of years. All four of the apocalyptic horses from dramatic lore War, famine, pestilence, and death galloped through the settlement repeatedly in its first 15 years. As many as 80% of 
all the Europeans who went to Jamestown in those first years died. Second, the brutal circumstances of Jamestown not only attracted some particularly brutal people, but it caused normal men to be brutal. There were few true heroes. Third, many of those men were keen on enforcing strict social hierarchy, a medieval trait that rapidly fell out of favor in the American self-image. Fourth, Jamestown was plopped into the middle of a densely populated area, so its success, as measured by the Virginia Company, turned out to require conquest of the Powhatan Confederacy, even if at the beginning the Virginia Company genuinely hoped that they wouldn't have to do that. Many national origins begin as conquests, but it's very much out of fashion to rejoice in it today. Fifth, Jamestown was overtly a commercial enterprise, even if it attracted investors by offering nobler objectives. Sixth, Jamestown did mark the beginning of the importation of Africans impressed involuntarily into servitude, which perhaps exceeds even the conquest of the Indians as our greatest national shame. And finally, Jamestown chroniclers often hated each other, so the men who wrote stuff down in the colony's early years often said horrible things about their rivals. One might attribute that to 17th century corporate politics, and much of it was. But it didn't make the first English Virginians look very good to posterity. Plymouth and the Pilgrims were none of these things. Yes, they had a first tough winter with Jamestown-like mortality rates. But after that, they thrived. They negotiated and kept a peace with the neighboring tribes that was largely unbroken for 50 years. The pilgrims who constituted a congregation were as egalitarian as it was possible to be in the early 17th century. They settled in a very thinly populated area, the result of an accident of epidemiology. While the pilgrims were trapped in a commercial arrangement, too, that they really had no control over, Profits were not their core motivation. And finally, they were blessed with leaders of learning and restraint who shared a common vision and wrote eloquently of their experiences. One of those experiences became the basis for Thanksgiving, the unique American holiday. I propose a final reason why Americans, historically some of the most religious people in modern Christendom, even when they aren't themselves Christians, prefer to think of Plymouth as the national inspiration rather than Jamestown. Jamestown was a top-down investment decision by wealthy Londoners, promoted by early imperialists and mercantilists. It met with endless misfortune and persisted only because of the infusion of massive amounts of capital and thousands of people who would die ingloriously and often in agony. Jamestown seems like the work of men, and not very blessed ones at that. Plymouth, however, was bottoms up, founded by pious families fleeing religious persecution. It was undercapitalized. It would receive few reinforcements. It would arguably survive only because of an astonishing run of luck in the hands of wise leaders. Plymouth seems like the work of God. A reason such as that might not sound important today to many Americans, but for most of our history, it would seem very important. 
The founding and success of Plymouth Colony was the result of at least five historical trends that converged at just the right moment. The first was the development of dissident sects within English Protestantism and the politics of the late Elizabethan era that drove their persecution. One of these groups, known as Brownists, came to believe that their beliefs were incompatible with the English National Church and that therefore they needed to separate from it. At first, the English tossed their leaders into the clink, the actual clink with a capital C, the original jail from which we get the word. I just learned that. I think it's kind of amusing. But eventually hit upon the idea of exporting them to Ireland and eventually America. The second trend was a growing English commercial interest in the northern eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada. Since 1597, the English had already made more than one attempt to settle in the region, the most famous of which was the Sagadahawk Popham Colony of 1607, with which long-standing and attentive listeners are familiar. But they had failed to establish a permanent presence. John Smith of Jamestown fame was basically looking for a new gig, and he made it his business to promote the area that he explored, mapped, and named New England. Smith would not get the gig, but his publicity would set the table. Third, a disreputable English commander would kidnap 27 Indians of the region in 1614 and attempt to sell them into slavery in Malaga, Spain. Some of them would be confiscated by local priests, at least one of them, a language savant named Hisquanum, six years later would walk out of the woods in Massachusetts speaking the king's English and save the pilgrims from starvation. Fourth, and perhaps most ironically, the existence and persistence of Jamestown would enable Plymouth in various critical ways. For example, if you've been following along, you already know that Samuel Argyll had sailed his ship Treasurer up from Jamestown to displant two French settlements along the coast including on Mount Desert Island, only 200 miles as the super crow flies to the northeast. Finally, an epidemiological disaster in the mid-16-teens would shape the population and geopolitical landscape of the New England coast in such a way that in 1620, the pilgrims would find a virtually depopulated area with cleared but abandoned fields ready for farming. More importantly... The few surviving Indians in the region calculated that they would be better served by an alliance with the Plymouth colonists, rather than fighting a two-front war against the powerful tribes to their west. The next few episodes will deal with these various threads, starting with the Brownists about a generation before William Bradford and company would leave their refuge in the Netherlands to sail for the New World. My main reference for this episode is a paper published in 1966 by perhaps the greatest historian of early English America, David Beers Quinn, whom long-standing and attentive listeners will remember from our series on the Roanoke colonies. In the 16th century, Protestant churches emerged throughout Northern Europe. Even national Protestant churches emerged, and in many cases they went about persecuting not only Catholics, but other Protestants who did not follow the strictures of the national church. Dominant Catholic churches, of course, continue to prosecute Protestants of all varieties. Invariably, the dissident groups would struggle to protect themselves internally, and 
as often as not, look for a domestic or international refuge. This created an inherent tension between their desire to practice their religion safely and their own loyalty, perceived and actual, to their country. The Huguenots of France were, in Quinn's words, the first to go on the offensive and tried to establish colonies in Brazil, South Carolina, and Florida. Their purpose was both to vex Spain, the leader of the Counter-Reformation and historical geopolitical rival to France, and to establish places of refuge in case it became impossible to live at home. In this fashion, the Huguenots demonstrated that religious dissent was not incompatible with national loyalty. In Elizabethan England, the national church broke with Catholics to the right, Presbyterians in the center, and Separatists to the left, known for much of history as Brownists. Presbyterians viewed themselves as loyal members of the national church, but conducted their own services in their own local congregations. Separatists were more radical and came to believe that their own views were so incompatible with the national church that they needed to separate. The famous pilgrims of the Mayflower were separatists, and it must be said often referred to as brownists even into the early 20th century. Catholic gentry stayed loyal to the crown, notwithstanding the burden of stiff fines for failing to attend the national church and the prohibition of mass. Radical Protestants worshipped in secret and wrote caustically of the Anglican church hierarchy and at the same time firmly asserted their loyalty to Elizabeth. There arose the question what to do with these patriotic heretics. In a time when religious uniformity was seen as a national imperative almost everywhere, neither radical Protestants nor Catholics could be allowed to follow their own faith at least not at home, where just anybody might see or hear them. It was therefore in Elizabeth's England that serious consideration was first given to exporting religious dissidents not to foreign states, but to outlying territories still under the jurisdiction of the crown. Not only would exported dissidents, not entirely expatriated, be unable to spread their heresy at home, but they might produce economic and geopolitical benefits for England. Three birds meet one stone. The first such exports were to Ireland, but as war with Spain loomed in the 1580s, Elizabeth's Privy Council began to worry that Philip II would meddle in Ireland and encourage treason, especially among English Catholics, who would no doubt resent the stiff fines they had to pay for not attending the national church. In the historical record, there's increasing discussion of sending dissident Protestants, at least, to North America. For example, in 1584, the great promoter of overseas expansion, Richard Hacklite, who had not approved of sending Catholics to North America, told Elizabeth that it might be useful to send some Protestants there. So who were these Protestants? David Beers Quinn summarizes their origins, quote, Separatism had clearly emerged in England by 1580. Presbyterians driven out of the church might hold services in secret, but they regarded themselves as still part of the national church. Congregations such as that headed by Robert Brown at Norwich considered themselves as almost wholly separated, a church community of believers drawn together into a religious and social unit sufficient unto itself. 
Prepared to bow to the magistrate, the state, in civil matters, they felt bound to resist state intervention in spiritual affairs. There was some dissension in Brown's congregation in 1580 on whether the church should go into exile. The members reconciled themselves to leaving England only when they were convinced that it was God's purpose for them to do so, namely when a sufficient number of them had been imprisoned. Though they trickled back and Brown returned in the end to the Church of England, separatism and its doctrine of the gathered church, hostile and severed from the undiscriminating national church, had arrived in England. Back to me. Notwithstanding the convergence of these two ideas, that England should export dissidents, and that the dissidents were inching toward agreement with that idea, Quinn, who would know, says there was no evidence that any separatists participated in the various expeditions to Roanoke Island in the second half of the 1580s, just to tie up that little loose end for long-standing listeners. In 1583, a zealot named John Whitgiff became Archbishop of Canterbury. He would set about tossing separatists in the clink and even hanging them. The war with Spain, which would functionally start with Drake's huge raid on the West Indies in 1585 and 86, that was a particularly fun episode of the podcast, by the way, put more pressure on anyone whose loyalty might be suspect. By the early 1590s, England was getting very inhospitable to the separatists. Quoting Quinn, The notion of getting rid of nonconformists to America was thus still in the air, but Archbishop Whitgiff could think of nothing but prison and the gallows for the separatists, at least to begin with. They were rounded up into jail, among them a little congregation of some 56 persons taken with their pastor, Francis Johnson, early in 1592. An act of parliament was forced through, which for the first time penalized Protestants as such. Between imprisonment and death, there was added in it the intermediate penalty of banishment if the person would not conform after a first offense. Back to me, in the course of the parliamentary debate over adding the penalty of banishment, Sir Walter Raleigh, then still very much in the business of promoting overseas colonization, asked a series of questions that might well be interpreted as calling for state support for large-scale colonization of separatists. Now back to Quinn. The problem of going or not going out of England was also worrying Francis Johnson as he lay in prison. He wrote to William Cecil, Lord Burley, whose instinct was strongly against persecuting Protestants. On December 7, 1593, asking him to pass on a petition to the Queen pleading that he and his congregation should not be forced to leave England, but that they should be tolerated at home, or at least within reach of it. He urged that this heavy chain laid upon our loins may be removed, that we be not still forced to go into fire and water as hitherto we have been, and that only for our obedience to the commandments of Christ. He asked instead that we may be suffered together in peace to live under Her Majesty's government in any place of her dominions. He was making the old case for toleration, if not in England, in some place where he and his people could still remain loyal subjects, perhaps meaning Ireland, possibly already casting his thoughts to America. 
Only if this were impossible would they go under alien rule to foreign parts, or, as he put it eloquently enough, to whithersoever it shall please God to bring us, and to give us a resting place for the service of his name and in peace and tranquility. Francis Johnson would get his opportunities soon enough. Sadly, it would not turn out well. Gradually, separatists in the clink threw in the towel, mixing metaphors there, and accepted banishment abroad, mostly moving to Holland. Francis Johnson remained behind, presiding from jail over an ever smaller congregation. Remarkably, he managed to marry a well-to-do widow of a wealthy London merchant who had been one of his congregants. Johnson's wife would smuggle out his correspondence by which he would continue the arcane and passionate debates that characterize the separatist sex. Meanwhile, in 1596, the leader of the exiled separatists in Amsterdam, Henry Ainsworth, wrote 45 articles of faith, the preface of which related that, quote, we are but strangers and pilgrims warring against many and mighty adversaries. The self-given name of pilgrims, which was later to attach to the pilgrims of 1620. Quoting Quinn, at last, in prison in England, the remaining members of the church came to think of themselves, too, as pilgrims. Their attitude of stubborn resistance to exile softened. A destination was at length suggested to them where they might settle within the Queen's allegiance. At the beginning of 1597, they were proposing to accept exile in the Gulf of St. Lawrence on the Magdalen Islands. There, on that unlikely soil, Francis Johnson saw at last the opportunity for establishing a company of faithful people. By the word of God, called out and separated from the world and the false ways of the gospel, by a voluntary profession of faith and obedience of Christ. Think you can make it, Pilgrim? At this point, it would definitely behoove you to pop open a map and look for the Magdalen Islands. They are in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, in the vast crescent formed by New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia, about 60 miles to the northwest of Cape Breton Island, and 100 miles straight west of the westernmost corner of Newfoundland. If you study the islands using the satellite photos, you will probably agree with me. The Magdalens look like they would be a wonderful place to live if they were in, say, the Caribbean. As Quinn put it, even the elect must eat. The first pilgrims needed an economic rationale to buy passage, supplies, and eventually to support themselves. Even the pilgrims who would settle at Patuxet a generation later knew that. As we will see, they established their own relationship with London investors, even if it was out of convenience rather than conviction. Again, England's long war with Spain had pointed the project in the direction of the Magdalens rather than someplace more hospitable. The English had been wearing out their ships, and the region contained a ready store of trees for masts, resin, and tar. There were seemingly limitless fish, which were salted and dried for eating by sailors, and vast herds of walruses from which oil could be extracted for lighting. The walrus oil was important because Spain, under the circumstances, was not selling its olive oil to the English. And, of course, there was the potential for the furs of North America, a very high-value product that could be transported easily and cheaply. 
All of this had led Burley, in many respects Elizabeth's most important advisor, to send ships to the Magdalens in the first half of the 1590s. The proceeds from those voyages established for Burley the strategic potential of the centrally located Magdalens. The problem was the Bretons, people from Brittany, and the French and Spanish Basques had also figured it out. The period in which walruses could be hunted efficiently in the region was in the spring, when they were on land pumping out walrus kids. Because the winter in the North Atlantic is no time to sail, when the winter faded and hunting ships could put to sea, the Bretons and the Basques had an advantage. Sailing the long-standing route via the Canaries and the Trades, remember, Gosnold and Argyll hadn't yet worked out the northerly route, the Bretons and the Basques could get to the Gulf of the St. Lawrence days before the English, whereupon they would get the lion's share of the hunt. The English needed an edge to overcome their geographical disadvantage, so a settlement on site seemed like the power move. By 1597, the plan came together. A group of London merchants and investors put up the equity stake and engaged Charles Lee, the 26-year-old son of a Surrey gentry. There would be two ships, the Hopewell and the Chancewell, with a small advance party of separatists. One of the two ships would stay behind over the following winter, and the separatists and accompanying craftsmen and workers would prepare the colony for a much larger detachment of separatists to come along in the spring of 1598 the next year. The remaining imprisoned separatists were freed on parole, presumably so that they could prepare to relocate to Canada. Francis Johnson would sail on the Hopewell with Lee. The Hopewell's master, William Craston, was experienced in American waters and a competent pilot. Francis's paranoid and religiously zealous brother, George Johnson, sailed on the smaller Chancewell, whose captain was Stephen Van Harwick, and his master was Stephen Bennett. Bennett was inexperienced in American waters and, per Quinn, quite possibly a bad navigator. The ship sailed from Falmouth on April 28 and reached the Grand Bank off Newfoundland on May 18, 1597. They then fussed around for days among the fishing fleet there trying to buy boats for fishing in the Magdalens, but only bought one leaky shallop. Then the two ships lost each other in fog off Placentia Bay, Newfoundland, still more than 300 miles east of the Magdalens. David Beers Quinn describes the ludicrous fate of the Chancewell, quote, She was not a happy ship. At Falmouth, George Johnson had attempted to circulate Ainsworth's A True Confession with its seditious preface amongst the sailors. Only the pastor's intervention saved him from rough treatment at the hands of Captain Van Harwick. There was more trouble at Newfoundland. Francis Johnson had to intervene again when George attempted to convert the crew, and there were renewed threats of punitive action. The Chancewell, and parting from Lee and the Hopewell, sailed southwest and past Cape Breton, but failed to find the Magdalens and returned to Cape Breton Island. She was reconnoitering St. Anne's Bay when, as George Johnson tells us, the ship, through the headiness of the master in a fair summer day, ran upon the rocks. The master, Stephen Bennett, made some amends by helping to get her off in the next tide, and she was safely beached. 
but no preparations were made to put her in a state of defense before she was overrun by boatloads of French Basques who had been fishing in the bay. They virtually stripped the ship, leaving the crew, their boats, a shallop and a ship's boat, and the clothes they wore, and little else. The Separatists lost all their settlers' gear. Captain Van Harwick was now in a desperate position, but he was evidently a responsibly-minded man, conscious of his obligations to his prickly and ungracious passengers. His own solution was to try to turn the tables on the Basques and capture one of their ships when she was sufficiently weakened by our boat's crews going off to fish. At the same time, he realized that he should, if possible, gain the cooperation of his passengers. To his disgust, George Johnson took up a passively pacifist attitude and would not countenance an attack on the Basques. Finally, the captain gave the Separatists three choices. To be put on shore, so that, as Johnson says they should be subject to be devoured by the wild. Or they would be handed over to the French to be brought to Europe, in which case, by them on seaboard, they should be urged to hear mass, says George Johnson, evidently regarding it as a worse fate than abandonment in wild America. Or lastly, they must adventure with a crew and try to take a prize, indeed, give their active assistance in doing so. George Johnson and the other separatists refused to make a decision. They said that they could not have their own hands in choosing, but which he, Van Harwick, would put upon them. That by God's help, they would undergo, hoping he would work for good. Back to me. Van Harwick was both incensed and at the same time respected their stoic obstinacy. So he put off a final decision. Instead, they set about repairing the boats, which would be useful under all scenarios. After several days, Van Harwick and George Johnson went for a walk along the cliffs when, indeed, God smiled upon them. Van Harwick spotted a mast far out to sea. They jumped into the shallop and sailed for it furiously, only to find that it was the Hopewell, now returning from the Magdalens. The Hopewell under Lee and Francis Johnson had sailed competently, but had been unlucky in an entirely different way. After losing the chance well in the fog of June 5th, the Hopewell sailed directly for the Magdalens. On June 18th, they rounded the southwestern end of the chain and put into the inner harbor. It was crowded and not in a good way. There were two Breton ships from friendly ports and two French Basque ships. Further away, there was an uncounted number of other Breton and Basque ships with crews at work drying cod and rendering oil from slaughtered walruses. There were also several hundred Mi'kmaq Indians who had come over from Nova Scotia to fish. Sadly, we have no record of Francis Johnson's reaction in finding the great refuge of his congregation already crowded with Europeans and indigenous Americans alike. While the Hopewell was heavily armed, it was also profoundly outnumbered, at least if it had to fight everybody else in the harbor. Lee invited the other captains over for refreshments. The Bretons came and assured him of their goodwill, but the Basques ignored him. Lee sent them an ultimatum. Unless they could assure him of friendly intentions, they must surrender their arms and munitions to him while they remained in the harbor. Not surprisingly, the Basques refused, so Lee sent a boarding party under Craston to confiscate their arms. 
Creston's boarding party indeed got control of the vast ships, but they themselves got out of control and began looting much more than the munitions. Lee insisted that they leave the loot, but Craston sided with the rest of the crew and demanded that at least one bass ship be taken as a prize. Lee faced a mutiny, but miraculously got control and talked his crew down, at least for the night of June 19th. The next morning, events overtook the Hopewell and her men. Back to Quinn. Quote, Lee found early that day that Bass and Bretons had joined forces and had called in reinforcements from the ships in the other harbors, together with some 300 Mi'kmaq Indian auxiliaries. They had mounted three guns on shore and soon opened fire on the Hopewell, which responded with her own armament, though it does not appear that any serious casualties were caused on either side. Lee was then invited to send delegates ashore to Parley, and rather trustingly, he let Ralph Hill, evidently acting as Lee's Cape Merchant, and a seaman go ashore, while a Breton sea captain came on board to dictate terms. Lee must give up the arms and also surrender his shallop before leaving the Magdalens. While this was taking place, a Breton ship had worked her way alongside and was ready to board when she was spotted and was obliged to sheer off by the threat to fire her sails. The Breton captain, the one who had issued Lee the ultimatum, slipped away in the confusion. Lee had cut his cable, which had been attached to the shore, and under threats to the hostages worked out of the harbor when at last Hill and the other men were allowed to return on board. Trouble had not ended, however, for the Hopewell ran aground on the bar at the entry of the outer harbor. But fortunately, the victorious Frenchman did not take advantage of Lee's plight, and the ship was floated off on the tide. As the Hopewell sailed up the eastern shores of the island group, Lee found further guns mounted to protect the northern harbors. That was it, then. There would be no settlement for the first pilgrims in the Magdalens, one of the most crowded and cosmopolitan places in vast early America. There was some discussion of trying Anticosti Island, land of the fearsome polar bears. You can see that in the map app, too. But the crew resisted, and Lee sailed east toward home. It was on June 27th, as they were nearing Cape Breton, that they encountered the boat from the wrecked Chancewell, and the Johnson brothers were reunited, even if not altogether joyfully. Craston and the rest of the Hopewell crew were still interested in piracy, and near Newfoundland took a Spanish Basque ship. There was another fight with Bretons and French Basques, and the ship was released. They then took and held a Breton ship. Lee and the Separatists transferred to that ship and sailed for home, and Lee released the Hopewell to Craston so he could take it in search of more prizes. Lee would not entirely give up on the Magdalens, and neither would various of the commercial and imperial interests who were enraptured with their strategic and economic value. Lee even put together a proposal for another voyage the next year, but he conditioned it on permission to treat French Basques as hostile and thereby subject to privateering. The Privy Council did not want to expand the already expensive war at sea and withheld permission. The Johnson brothers would return to exile in Amsterdam, and George would write a paranoid, though historically useful, account of the 1597 trip, which kept its memory alive to history. Francis would become a leader of the separatists in Holland, and certainly influenced the next generation, including William Bradford, William Brewster, and the others, 
to leave Leiden in 1620 and the voyage that would eventually establish Plymouth Colony. At Patuxet, they would find a perfect place to settle, as if God had prepared it for them. The second pilgrims would survive, as any American who has eaten turkey on the last Thursday in November well knows. That is a story we will take up in a couple of weeks hence, after we reunite with John Smith, who would become the leading secular champion for the settlement of New England. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. Both easy to find by searching. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>